All right. Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala. And today we are going to do a, and it sounds super exciting. We're going to be doing a book study. <laughs> okay. Um, if you saw the thumbnail, um, I am going to be covering chapter one of this interesting book called Van Til and the Use of Evidence. Um, I have no idea if this can be purchased anywhere. As a matter of fact, um, if I go to Amazon right now, let's see what happens. Uh, this bad boy, I don't think, is... Let me take a moment to do this. Hold up. Uh, let me see here. Van Til and the use of evidence. And it is not available. <laughs> there you go. It's not available. So uh, this is the place to cut. This is the place to be, right? If you can't buy this anywhere or maybe you found some copy somewhere. Actually, I did not purchase this book. I stole this book from a friend. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't steal from it. But the, a friend of mine was generous in giving me this, um, this very old copy. Now, I have to tell you something that when I was struggling with uh, issues of apologetic methodology. Um, I was kind of born and raised, apologetically speaking, um, listening to William Lane Craig and more of the classical approach and taking a look at kind of a lot of these rational, traditional arguments and evidential arguments and things like that. And um, I really enjoyed them and they were useful to me. I was able to, you know, I, I've often used uh, the cosmological argument, the Kalam cosmological argument, um, you know, I remember reading uh, Dr. Craig's uh, On Guard, um, Defending the Faith with Precision. I remember that the little subtitle there. Um, and it was a great resource uh, for me. And I still go back to some of those older books that I used to use at the beginning uh, when I was studying apologetics. And so I find them useful. And then when I was introduced to presuppositional apologetics, I was like, wow, like this is um, this seems biblical. It seems very powerful. Um, in its argumentation, you know, the transcendental argument, of course, I listened to the famous Bonson debate and I absorbed all of the, uh, you know, the presuppositional literature and the videos that were out, you know. Um, uh, but there was a struggle. I was grappling with um, the relationship between uh, a presuppositional approach and an evidential and classical approach. On the one hand, I really wanted to use these evidences in my um, my various apologetic interactions. Um, but at the same time, I wanted to make sure, oh, I have to be a presuppositionalist. There's no neutrality, no autonomy, these sorts of things. And so this was really uh, kind of a, a balancing act for me. You know, um, if I felt very William Lane Craigy, I would, you know, I'd read a William Lane Craig book and I'd do apologetics like that. And I'm like, no, I'm a, I think I'm a little off here. Then I'll feel like, oh, I need to jump back into Bonson or Van Til. And I kept going back and forth, not really understanding um, the relationship between uh, evidences and presuppositions and our worldview and, and what that looks like. And so when I was able to get my hands on this little book, which unfortunately none of you can get your hands on it unless you could find it somewhere. Um, when I got a hold of this book, uh, it was very, very helpful. And it's it's small. I mean, look at this thing. It's like a super small and the chapters are ridiculously small. So for example, um, in this live stream, I'm going to be walking through chapter one. Um, and uh, it's just a couple of pages. I mean, very easy to follow uh, along. 
And I just want to kind of highlight kind of the main things that I've gotten from uh, the first chapter. And I'm going to try my best to uh, go through the other chapters as well in, in further videos. But um, it was super, super helpful. And so that's what I want to talk about um, today. Van Til and the use of evidences. And again, I want to destroy the caricature of, um, you know, of presuppositionalism that exists out there that presuppositionalists are somehow allergic to using um, evidences and, and various arguments and things like that. So, um, so that's, what we're going to be talking about here. I hope this is helpful for some people. Um, I hope that this channel scratches your presuppositional itch. Um, if, if you're really wanting to get into, uh, kind of the deeper issues. And so if you look at the backlog of many of my past videos, we cover all sorts of aspects of, um, apologetics in general, but presuppositional apologetics more specifically. And so I, I hope it's a blessing and that it's useful, um, for folks. Now, that being said, before we jump in, I have to, have to, have to throw out the reminder that the Epic online presub conference with myself, Dr. Chris Bolt, Dr. Jason Lyle, Matt Slick, and Joshua Pillows that is on the 12th, okay? It is going to be Saturday, November 12th, this Saturday, November 12th, beginning at 10 a.m. and ending around 4.30 p.m. with short breaks in between speakers. And so those who have RSVP'd for this event will be sent a link. Um, and of course, they have the schedule there and they will click that link when each of the speakers come on or they can stay connected the whole, the whole time if they like. Um, but it's it's epic because it's going to last the whole, um, you know, the whole day, which I'm super excited. It's my first time ever doing something like this. I'm so, so um, excited and blessed that uh, the speakers who will be sharing agreed to uh, to come on and to share. So if you take a look at the, the conference topics there, I'm going to be giving an overview of the presuppositional method. Dr. Lyle is going to be talking about um, a little bit more in depth of what I'm speaking about now. Um, and, and that's using evidence within a presuppositional framework. I'm sure he'll kind of include, um, you know, some of his creation uh, apologetics in there as well. Dr. Chris Bolt's going to be talking about transcendental arguments in general and Van Til's transcendental argument in particular. Matt Slick is going to be teaching us how to apply precept to the cults. And Joshua Pillows is going to speak at the end, and he's going to answer the various uh, objections against the presuppositional approach. All right. So I'm super excited. That is this. Saturday. Now, here's the thing before I, you know, remove this from the screen and we jump into our topic for today. The final day for people to RSVP for this event is on the 10th. Okay. The conference is on the 12th. The last day you can sign up is on the 10th by 1130 PM Eastern. So you can sign up right now by going to revealedapologetics.com, clicking on the link on the drop down menu, presup you and then you could RSVP, okay? That has to be done by November 10th, the latest 11.30 p.m. Eastern on November 10th, but the conference is on the 12th, okay? Now, I, I work with middle school students. I feel like I have to repeat myself over and over again. Feel, when is it? I thought the conference was on the 10th. It's on the 12th, and the deadline to sign up is on the 10th by 11.30 p.m., all right? Okay, so wanted to throw that out there. Also. I'm planning an epic online Calvinism uh, conference in which I'm going to be having Dr. James White, uh, Guillaume Bignon, um, uh, Scott Christensen, 
who wrote the book, What is Free Will? I think that's what it's called. And, um, you know, he wrote a book on, on the problem of evil as well. And Saiten Bruggenkate, who is going to be um, uh, joining me in that as well. So uh, we're going to be covering a whole wide range of topics. I promise the epic online Calvinism debate um, uh, conference, sorry, is not going to be the generic run-of-the-mill Calvinist conference where we walk through the tulip, you know, told depravity on condition. No, we're going to be covering topics that I think are going to be very useful and helpful for people. And so uh, when I nail down that specific date, I have all the speakers confirmed. When I nail that, down that date, I will let folks know when they're able to kind of sign up for that as well. And by signing up, both to the online uh, presub, um, the epic online presub conference um, and the epic Calvinism conference, uh, you're supporting Revealed Apologetics as well. So if you found this channel to be a blessing, um, I would greatly appreciate it that you support by uh, purchasing a, a ticket and RSVPing for um, this weekend's event and our event that's probably going to be in the late January, okay, of next year. All right. Well, without further ado, got that out of the way. Um, if you have any questions as I am going through um, going through our topic for today, um, preface your question with uh, the letter Q or the word question so that I can differentiate it from the comments. All right. Now I kind of announced I was going to come on today at last, last second. So I'm not sure how many people will be listening. Um, but if you happen to be dropping by, I see a couple of people watching already and you have a question, I'll try my best to, uh, address them. And if I can't address your question, I'm just going to look weirdly and oddly at the camera and say, I don't know. <laughs> okay. So I, I, um, I don't know everything. So I, I will try my best to be as useful and helpful to you as possible. Um, all right. So let's jump in. Uh, chapter one of uh, Van Til and the use of evidence is entitled the legitimacy of evidence. Okay. I think that's an important place to start. I mean, the book covers uh, a bunch of different uh, topics. So for example, I can read you the table of contents. Part one begins with the legitimacy of evidences. Chapter two is entitled Evidences, Apologetics, and Theology. Part two, Knowledge in the Covenantal Framework. He speaks of two senses of what it means to know. What about epistemological neutrality? He speaks about neutrality, the role of evidence and proof. Okay. Um, and then he goes on to take a look at some scriptures and, and answers various uh, objections and things like that. So, I mean, this tiny little book is packed with some super helpful uh, information, uh, but we're just covering chapter one, which is very brief. So I'm not sure how long we'll be here. It depends how many questions come in or, you know, if I, you know, I did have some coffee, so I might be blabbing uh, and have the energy to blab, but I just remembered it was decaf. So I'm not sure. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Okay. So chapter one is entitled the legitimacy of evidence. Okay. Now um, it, I, I want to open up with, uh, again, this kind of dichotomy that was in my mind when I was struggling. Uh, um, uh, should we be evidential or should we be presuppositional, right? And this either or mentality is really a common misunderstanding. It's something that many of us who are in the apologetic game, so to speak, and, and study the method a lot, methodology and things like that, um, we can kind of set the issues up in this way. And it, it definitely has been set up in that way by critics of the, um, the presuppositional approach. And I would say by uninformed presuppositionalists, presuppositionalists who are emphasizing presupposition so much uh, that they do so to the exclusion of the use of evidences and other arguments. So uh, again, so evidential or presuppositional, I think this common false dichotomy uh, really needs to be destroyed, okay? Because it's, it, it does not properly represent the situation, okay? Um, so sometimes we could approach this topic as though presuppositionalists don't use evidence and evidentialists don't have presuppositions, 
Okay. Uh, Bonson pointed this out in one of his lectures. Um, and this was, again, he pointed it out as a common misunderstanding. Okay. Presuppositionalists can use evidence and evidentialists have presuppositions. Um, I would argue, though, that the presuppositionalist tends to be more aware of their presuppositions and the role that they play in the apologetic encounter. Okay. And this is something that Van Til often emphasized. It's important for us to be um, what Van Til said, epistemologically self-conscious. We need to be epistemologically self-conscious. We need to be aware of our theory of knowledge. We need to be aware of our metaphysical assumptions. We need to be aware of the broader worldview context in which we are engaging in the apologetic dialogue with the unbeliever, right? So we want to be sensitive to our worldview at every point, at every point of the apologetic encounter. And that's not simply because uh, our worldview gives, con gives context to the data points we bring up, but it also allows us to always be in touch with the authority of God, right? It helps us to recognize that what we're doing when we're engaging the unbeliever is much more than just simply arguing for the truth of a position, right? We are representing our Lord and the manner in which we do it. We want to do it in a way that is consistent with the word of God. So that's super, super important, right? Worldview thinking allows us to um, be better at consistency when we're talking about specific things, right? When we speak of specifics and we have uh, a consciousness of our worldview perspective, we tend to be more consistent with ourselves because we're aware of what is undergirding the specific data points that are being brought up within the apologetic um, conversation. Okay. So evidential or presuppositional, presuppositionalists don't use evidence and evidentialists don't have presuppositions is false. Okay. In reality, presuppositionalists can use evidence. They should use evidence. They should use arguments. Um, and um, evidentialists, have presuppositions. Okay. Um, so again, so, but, but what makes people think that presuppositionalists are allergic to evidence? I think the root of that common misconception is partly due to Van Til himself and the kind of the unclear way that he often presented his position. Now, I don't want to put all the blame on Van Til. I want to blame also many of the critics of Van Til. Because I think one of the problems in terms of the critics is that Van Til has often been read in piecemeal fashion, okay? You pick up a quote here, you pick up a quote there, um, and outside of its context, uh, it can look like Van Til is very allergic to any sort of rational argumentation and um, and use of evidences. Matter of fact, Van Til has often been accused of being a fideist, right? Uh, we don't argue, right, for our position. We just believe, and then we assert dogmatically that the Christian worldview is true and that's it. You're a fool if you don't accept it and, you know, game over. That's it. End of discussion. And that's that's not at all the case. And it's clearly not the case when we take a closer look at what Van Til wrote in many of his books. So we want to, um, when criticizing a position, we want to read holistically what that person has wrote um, across the spectrum so that we can get an accurate and fuller picture of what that person holds to so that we're in a better position to, um, to criticize. Okay. All right. So, um, here is a quote from Van Til that, um, lends to this idea that he's really he's not interested in talking about the facts and, and things like that. Van Til says in his apologetic syllabus, uh, he says it is impossible and useless to seek to vindicate Christianity as a historical religion by a discussion of facts only. Okay. It is impossible and useless to seek to vindicate Christianity as a historical religion 
by a discussion of facts only. Okay. So again, it's impossible. It's useless to try and vindicate Christianity by an appeal to the, the facts, the historical facts, right? Taken in an isolated fashion, of course, this this sounds very um, <laughs> sounds very anti-evidence, right? Uh, and again, I wouldn't blame people coming to come to that conclusion if this is all they uh, they read of Van Til. Let's take a, a look at a quote from Greg Bonson. Um, Greg Bonson says that the gospel does not cater to rebellious man's demands for factual signs and logical argumentation that will pass the test of autonomous scrutiny. I'll read that again. The gospel does not cater to rebellious man's demand for factual signs and logical argumentation that will pass the test of autonomous scrutiny. So there you go. The gospel does not cater to rebellious man's demands, okay? For factual signs, give me facts, give me arguments. We don't cater to that, right? Because he's the sinner. He's the, the totally depraved sinner that is running away from God, right? So we do not um, satisfy his demands, okay? Now, again, um, taking this in piecemeal fashion that would seem to suggest like our prior quote from van till that we're really not supposed to be arguing with unbelievers because they're the unbelievers right they are the uh the guilty party who are they to judge god and demand evidence and things like that uh and there you go so you have isolated quotes like this that kind of lend to um you know this this idea this common misunderstanding all right well there are a couple of things i, I want to keep in mind and what you see when you hear um, someone like Bonson say something along these lines and something like what Van Til has said in his syllabus there, you begin to identify some very important influences that um, really affected Van Til's perspective and, and, and really informed his apologetic methodology. Now, uh, for those who are kind of just know a little bit about Bonson and a little bit about Van Til, it's very important to know some historical context uh, with respect to the development of Van Til's thought really when he was kind of putting the presuppositional puzzle pieces together at the beginning of his career. Okay. There was a heavy influence influence um, um, of Abraham Kuyper, who I'm going to speak about in just a moment, but I almost skipped. Here's another quote in isolation that looks like uh, the, bio, the, the, the Christian apologist, the presuppositionalist is against um, the use of evidence and argument and things like that. Okay. This is from Jim Halsey. I think I'm pronouncing that. It's a quote from his book, For Such a Time as This, An Introduction to the Reformed Apologetic of Cornelius Van Til. He says, the Christian can point to nothing outside the Bible for verification of the Bible, because the simple fact is that everything outside the Bible derives its meaning from the interpretation given it by the Bible. Now, taken in isolation, very easy to interpret this in a negative light. And I would say that's Jim Halsey's fault. This is a very clumsily put together sentence. Uh, and without context, yes, it sounds um, really, it sounds demonstrably false if you just take it at face value, isolated from the broader uh, context. Okay. So now we have, let's go back here. So we have Van Til. It is impossible and useless to seek to vindicate Christianity as a historical religion by discussion of facts only. We have Greg Bonson. The gospel does not cater to rebellious man's demand for factual signs and logical argumentation that will pass the test of autonomous scrutiny. We have Jim Halsey, who says the Christian can point to nothing outside the Bible for verification of the Bible because the simple fact is that everything outside the Bible derives its meaning from the interpretation given to it by the Bible. Okay, there you go. Well, what is the undergirding influence of this? Well, of course, this is, um, except for Van Til himself, 
Bonson and uh, Jim Halsey, um, they are channeling their Van Til, right? They're channeling their Van Til. They're, they're saying, hey, I want to be faithful to Van Til's apologetic because I think it's biblical. I think it's powerful. Um, and they're emphasizing really things that are consistent with what Van Til taught. However, there is a deeper influence that um, that kind of goes beyond uh, really at the early career of Van Til, an early influence on Van Til's thought. And that came from Abraham Kuyper. Okay. Now I have, um, you, you know, uh, a picture here of this old dude that probably no one knows. Okay. But if you know anything about, uh, church history and of course, uh, reformed history, Abraham Kuyper, uh, was the prime minister of the Netherlands between 1901 and 1905. He was an influential Calvinist theologian and journalist, and he established the reformed churches in the Netherlands. Okay. And when he founded that church in the Netherlands, it became the second largest Calvinist denomination in the country behind the actual state-supported church, the Dutch Reformed Church, okay? So he was a pretty uh, influential uh, dude, all right? Now, why is he important here, and, and how does he relate to Van Til? Well, there, you have to understand there are two main pillars of influence, in Van Til. Now, of course, there are, there are others, obviously, um, but there are two very important pillars that I would say are, are um, really the foundation of the presuppositional approach as Van Til uh, made it. And he kind of took these two pillars, the thoughts of these two individuals, and put them together and formulated, um, you know, the presuppositional approach. That's an overly simplistic way of, of, um, uh, of explaining it. But Abraham Kuyper and B.B. Warfield. Abraham Kuyper and B.B. Warfield. Now, I'm not, not going to talk so much about B.B. Warfield, but B.B. Warfield emphasized the importance of rational argumentation. He believed that Christians should engage in the apologetic task. However, Abraham Kuyper, Abraham Kuyper was, um, he placed a great emphasis upon worldviews, okay? So did Van Til, right? Um, but he placed a great emphasis upon worldviews. He placed a great emphasis upon the lordship of Jesus Christ. He placed a great emphasis upon, upon antithesis, that because we have a worldview perspective and because we're committed to Christ, there is no neutrality, right? No neutrality whatsoever. And of course, because there is no neutrality and because there is antithesis, there is this diametric um, opposition between the um, Christian worldview and the non-Christian worldview. And since there's no area of neutrality from Kuiper's perspective, Jesus Christ rules all. <clears throat> Pardon. There is no neutrality, and therefore, there is no point of contact between the Christian and the non-Christian. All right? And of course, Abraham Kuiper, as a result, concluded that apologetics is useless. Why is it useless? Well... Because the Christian has a worldview, the unbeliever has a worldview, there is no neutrality, and therefore there is no point of contact. So what's the point, right? So again, apologetics is useless from the perspective of Abraham Kuyper. Now, of course, Van Til did not agree with this, but the impact and the influence you see coming from Kuyper comes in that worldview emphasis. It comes in that emphasis of antithesis and the, the reality that there is no neutrality. Okay. Now this is a very important distinction that we need to make. And all of these points that I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting straight from chapter one of this book. Okay. I'm not just riffing off, you know, shooting, shooting from the hip. All of the first chapter kind of explains uh, a lot of this. Okay. That, um, there is no neutrality. And so apologetics is 
um, is really useless. Van Til disagreed with that, but um, emphasized and appreciated the uh, Kyperian contribution of worldview, no neutrality, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Okay. But we need to make an important distinction that while it's true that there is no neutrality, right? I would hold to that wholeheartedly. I think Abraham Kuyper is 100% correct. There is no neutrality. I think Van Til is 100% correct. There is no neutrality. Given the Christian worldview and our commitments to Jesus Christ, there is no neutrality. I agree with that. Okay. What I would disagree with and what Van Til disagreed with Kuyper here is that while there is no neutral ground between the believer and unbeliever, there is common ground. Okay. I'm going to say that again. This is super, super important in understanding the presuppositional approach. Okay. While it is true that there is no neutral ground between the unbeliever and believer, there is common ground. Okay. And what is that common ground? Right. Why is it that we can still communicate with the unbeliever, even though we are coming from diametrically opposing paradigms? The common ground is that that unbeliever is made in the image of God and that he has a knowledge of God so that we can speak with him and he will understand because the unbeliever never actually is consistent with his unbelief. The unbeliever professes with their mouth, but they believe something else in their heart. And that is what we as apologists are trying to expose the inconsistency between what they believe in their heart and what they say with their mouths, right? Okay. Perfect example of this comes when we speak of morality, right? Oh, there is no God. All right. There's no purpose, no nothing to the universe. And then they'll shake their fist when they see injustice and speak as though there is something like objective morality and objective right and wrong and things like this. Okay. So um, we want to be able to point those inconsistencies out. Okay. But you see a heavy influence of Abraham Kuyper in um, Van Til's thought. Um, and I think in uh, correctly, Van Til ate the meat and spat out the bones, okay, with respect to Abraham Kuyper and res with respect to whether apologetics is useless or not. It obviously isn't. Um, Van Til literally wrote a book called Christian Apologetics. So he believes that you should do apologetics, okay? Now, in light of this, okay, we have these quotes, these isolated quotes from Bonson. We have some isolated quotes from Van Til. We have isolated quotes from Jim Halsey, okay? We see the Kuyperian influence um, in the uh, presuppositional tradition, right? Now, in light of this, when taken in piecemeal, how have others read Van Til? Okay. Now, again, others in reading Van Til, um, it's very evident that he is treated in piecemeal fashion. Okay. Um, again, if I wasn't a presuppositionalist, but I studied presuppositionalism the way that I do now, um, I would still say that many of the critics of Van Til just haven't read him thoroughly or they have not read him rightly and in context. Some of it is Van Til's fault, but I would also say some of these attacks and objections against Van Til's presuppositionalism are completely um, irresponsibly formulated and show an ignorance of what Van Til has said in other places. So what have people said about Van Til or concluded about his thought? Let's take a look uh, at Clark Pinnock in his book, The Philosophy of Christian Evidences in page 423, and, uh, well, page 420 and 423, he says, this is reflecting in, uh, upon the presuppositional method, okay? He's saying this is a result of it. Because God transcends the world, nothing in the world of factuality is capable of revealing him of itself, okay? And then he goes on to charge Van Til with something along the lines that he says, he believes he can start, Van Til can, he, Van Til can, uh, he believes that he can start with God and Christianity 
without consulting objective reality. So uh, Clark Pinnock is saying, yeah, he wants to start with God and Christianity as though he can do that without actually talking about what is objectively real, the facts, right? Uh, Pinnock is kind of saying, well, given the presuppositional approach, uh, Van Til's trying to start with God and Christianity as though all these other things are impossible. Now, of course, that is not Van Til's position. He doesn't hold to that. These, this is a caricature, okay? So Clark Pinnock doesn't have a firm grasp as, grasp as to what uh, Van Til was getting at, okay? I think it's an inaccurate um, interpretation of Van Til and presuppositionalism. Then we have John Warwick Montgomery uh, in, his, uh, in his book, uh, or I think it's an article, uh, I don't remember off the top of my head, uh, Once Upon an A Priori. Uh, Bonson wrote a response to uh, John Warwick Montgomery. It's uh, available online. Uh, I don't know where you could find it. Sorry, that's not very helpful. <laughs> it's available online somewhere. I have no idea where, but it's it's somewhere out there. Uh, he says this, uh, in kind of concluding, in light of his understanding of presuppositionalism, he says Van Til eliminates all possibility of offering a positive demonstration of the truth of the Christian view. That, that's that's pretty harsh, right? Van Til eliminates all possibility of offering a positive demonstration of the truth of the Christian view, right? So there you go, all right? Van Til destroys apologetics. Um, that's a pretty lofty claim. Again, he's either have, hasn't read all of Van Til or um, he is uh, reading Van Til and just not understanding correctly because Van Til obviously would not agree with this. Nor is this a necessary logical entailment of a presuppositional approach, right? John Warwick Montgomery is just wrong here, okay? Um, of course, there's another theologian here um, in, in the book, Van Til and Carnell, in page 361. Gordon Lewis says, Van Til has left the faith defenseless, okay? Given the presuppositional approach, there is no defending the faith, right? Why? Because all you have on presuppositionalism are dogmatic assertions. That's all you got, okay? There's no argument. It's fideistic. We assert the authority of God. It sounds sanctimonious and, uh, you know, reverent to speak of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that he is, we are to set apart Christ as Lord in our heart and uh, all these sorts of things. It sounds nice, but in reality, Van Til has left the faith defenseless. How do we defend the faith? By simply asserting on authority, dogmatic assertions that Christianity is true and the Bible is true. Where is the argument? Okay. And this is, uh, again, this is an outflow of the misconception that Van Til is against using evidences. And so in the chapter of, of this book here, uh, it goes on to talk about, uh, these various quotes. I got the quotes directly from the first chapter. Um, I mean, it's the chapter is so short. I won't bore you by reading the chapter, but I mean, Technically could. It's pretty short. Um, but yeah, so um, Nataro kind of surveys some of these quotes by Van Til, and then he surveys some of these quotes from these people who have misunderstood Van Til, and then he kind of asks the question, hey, what gives? What's what's going on here? And then he goes on to show that Van Til uh, was not so allergic to evidences as, uh, as many thought, okay? So uh, Van Til and evidences, okay? What do we get from Van Til and the use of evidence? Well, from reading chapter one and listening and reading some of the quotes from Van Til that uh, Nataro points out, we find that Van Til likes them. He likes evidence, right? Uh, notice what Van Til says in my credo on page 21. He says, we present the message and evidence for the Christian position as clearly as possible, knowing that because man is what the Christian says he is. 
the non-Christian will be able to understand in an intellectual sense the issues involved. Okay, there you go. Vantil says we present the message and evidence for the Christian position. Vantil believes that there is evidence for the Christian position and we should present it as clearly as possible. Okay, why? Because knowing that because man is what the Christian says he is, the non-Christian will be able to understand in an intellectual sense the issues involved. What does the Christian say the, the non-Christian is? Well, the Christian says that the non-Christian is made in the image of God. He has a knowledge of God that is being suppressed according to Romans chapter 1. And so we can speak to him meaningfully because the non-believer is never consistent with his professed unbelief. And we want to appeal to the Imago Dei within them to show that they are suppressing the truth and we call them to repentance, right? So um, doing that may require to go all presuppositional on them, but it also may require to uh, require us to um, remove the mask of um, suppression of the truth by discussing some of the data points, the evidence for Christianity, okay? That includes that, okay? Um, Van Til says in the Christian theory of knowledge on page 250, and again, this is highlighted in the book here. He says, the Christian faith is not a blind faith, but is based on evidence. I'm gonna say that again, okay? I want you to listen carefully. Yes, this is a quote from Van Til. He says, the Christian faith is not a blind faith, but is based on evidence, okay? <sighs> so now if I take this quote and I put it on Facebook somewhere, but I don't attribute it to anyone, I bet you no one would think it came from Van Til, <laughs> right? Because Van Til didn't speak like this. Well, apparently he does, right? Mm. In Common Grace and the Gospel on page 184, Van Til goes on to say, Christianity meets every legitimate demand of reason. Okay, I'm gonna say that again. Christianity meets every legitimate demand of reason and is not irrational, but capable of rational defense. Okay? It meets every legitimate demand of reason and Christianity is capable of rational defense. That means Van Til believed that you should use your reason. And Van Til believes that we should rationally provide a defense for the faith. Okay? So that's, there you go. Okay. Very contrary to uh, this guy over here, right? Vantil has left the faith defenseless, right? Why? Because a dogmatic assertions, nothing else. Okay. Vantil eliminates all the possibility of offering a positive demonstration of the truth of the Christian faith. Uh, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Not in any way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, I love reading this one. These are really helpful quotes. If anyone says, well, Van Til didn't believe you should use, uh, you know, the, tra the traditional proofs and evidences and things like this. Van Til says in the defense of the faith, page 197, quote, I do not reject theistic proofs. I'm going to say that again. I'll say it slowly. Okay. I do not reject theistic proofs. Okay. What are the theistic proofs? Cosmological arguments teleological arguments, moral arguments. He didn't reject them in principle. Now, there are presuppositionalists who reject some of those arguments, but you have to understand something, okay? For example, uh, Greg Bonson rejected various forms of the cosmological argument, okay? Um, you can learn this from some of his lectures where he kind of criticizes uh, and gives his own critique of the cosmological arguments. Well, one of them. Um, I don't know how he felt about all of them in general, but the Bonson's rejection, for example, of a cosmological argument is not an essential feature to a presuppositional um, perspective, okay? You could be a presuppositionalist and find 
the cosmological argument a good argument, right? And you may find it useful in various uh, contexts. And you might be a presuppositionalist and say, okay, I could, I could accept the cosmological argument, but I have yet to see one formulated. That's a good argument, okay? And you have people who differ. It's not an essential feature. So Vansell says, I do not reject theistic proofs, but check this out, but merely insist on formulating them in such a way as not to compromise the doctrines of scripture. I'm going to say that again. I do not reject the theistic proofs, but merely insist on formulating them in such a way as not to compromise the doctrines of scripture. And what Van Til has in mind here is that the traditional proofs have often been formulated in such a way as to assume neutral categories and autonomous categories with respect to man's reasoning ability. And this idea that things like causation is intelligible in and of itself, independent of the broader context of God's revelation. Okay. I would argue that our knowledge of causality is itself revelational and requires a Christian context to make intelligible. Okay. Now check this out. Okay. Uh, next quote here. This is from the defense of the faith page 199 Van Til says, I would therefore engage in historical apologetics. I get this question sometimes. Can a presuppositionalist appeal to historical arguments? Yes. According to Van Til. I would therefore engage in historical apologetics, but he makes this qualification, and I think this is uh, it's good that he makes this. Um, I do not personally do a great job of this because my colleagues in the other departments of the seminary in which I teach are doing it better than I could do it, but I would not talk endlessly about facts and more facts without ever challenging the non-believer's philosophy of fact. That's a key point in understanding Van Til, Okay. You want to talk about the historical facts with respect to the resurrection of Jesus and the empty tomb and the women finding it and the criteria of embarrassment and all these sorts of things. We can talk about all those things. You want to use the minimal facts. If you take a look, for example, I had an interview with Dr. Gary Habermas somewhere on my show. It's in the backlog of videos. And it was really cool uh, to hear him talk about um, him and Bonson. He knew, he knew Dr. Bonson. I'm not sure that they were close, but they were maybe at a conference or something like that. And uh, Gary Habermas gave his, uh, his minimal facts. And uh, he asked Dr. Bonson what he thought about them. And, and, and Dr. Bonson says, well, I think that um, that's basically a presuppositional argument. And uh, Dr. Habermas said, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, you, you are assuming the unbeliever's position for the sake of argument and then showing it to be uh, reduced, to full, reduced to absurdity, right? The minimal fact says, hey, let's assume the standards of secular history Okay. And even on that basis, given these minimal facts, there's this strong evidence for the resurrection. So Monson, you know, thought that it was presuppositional and, and Dr. Habermas was like, all right, whatever, as long as it's helpful, you know? Uh, so, so yeah, so presuppositionalism has no problem in engaging in historical apologetics, right? He says, I will therefore, I would therefore engage in historical apologetics as long as we make the distinction between talking about the facts, but not simply talking about the facts without also going to the broader uh, the broader worldview issue, what Van Til says, the non-believers philosophy of fact. Now, you may be engaging in an apologetic argument with someone about the historicity of the New Testament and the um, historicity of the resurrection, okay? And suppose someone says, hey, what's the evidence for the resurrection? And you lay out the evidence and the person's like, hey, man, that that gives me a lot to think about. This is really interesting. Hey, maybe we can meet again and talk. At that moment, I don't have to run, even as, as a presuppositionist. I don't have to run straight. Well, wait, you have to hear the rest. Your presuppositions, bro. No, right? Um, we can talk about the historical data without always getting into discussions with 
um, you know, uh, worldviews and things like that, right? I would say the worldview considerations are, is the background music playing in your mind. It's always there. And when you talk about the data points, it's important, the facts, right? The historical facts, the criteria of history and all these sorts of things. But eventually, depending on who you're speaking with, you can't stay there. Otherwise, you're just going to be talking past each other. You're you're throwing facts at someone who has a worldview that filters the facts and interprets interprets the facts in a completely different way. He's got a different paradigm. Okay, so I think Vantilla is spot on here. He says, "But I would not talk endlessly about facts and more facts without ever challenging the non-believers' philosophy of fact." Okay, super duper important. Now, notice the the quotes here. I'm going to go back to the quotes here. So facts only. This is what Van Til said here. Let me go back to the quote here. Okay. It is impossible and useless to seek to vindicate Christianity as a historical religion by discussion of the facts only. Now, I want you to think about that. We're going to go all the way back over here. Okay. All right. And Bonson says, oh, I'm sorry. So Bonson says, let's go to the Bonson quote. The gospel does not cater to rebellious man's demand for factual signs and logical argumentation that will pass the test of autonomous scrutiny. Okay. Now notice what's going on here. There are important qualifying comments that need to be made. Okay. These like facts only in the Van Til quote and uh, Bonson's mention of uh, the rebellious man's demand, right? These are important qualifiers, which imply that factual discussions are not absolutely ruled out, but are proper when combined with other necessary considerations, namely Christian presuppositions. So let's go all the way back again and break this down. It is impossible and useless to seek to vindicate Christianity as a historical religion by a discussion of the facts only. Now notice what Van Til is not saying. He is not saying that we should not talk about the facts, okay? That's not what he's saying. It's just not what he's saying, okay? He's not saying we shouldn't talk about the facts. He's saying we should not talk about the facts only. Why? Well, because we need to eventually address the unbeliever's philosophy of fact, right? So taken in isolation, it looks like he's repudiating facts, but in context, of course, he's not. Okay, let's take a look at Bonson's quote here. The gospel does not cater to rebellious man's demand for factual signs and logical argumentation that will pass the test of autonomous scrutiny. Notice what he's not saying, okay? Bonson is not holding to the position that we should not give logical argumentation, okay, and factual signs. What he's saying is we shouldn't present logical argumentation and factual signs in a way that caters to the autonomous test that the unbeliever demands that we that we go through in order to demonstrate to him the existence of God, right? Bonson would agree that we should appeal to factual signs and logical argumentation, but he would disagree that we should do it in a way that caters to the unbeliever's assumptions of autonomy, right? Isn't that an important qualification, right? Read someone in context. That's a very helpful way to better understand. And at the end of the day, if you disagree with Van Til, you disagree with Bonson, you disagree with presuppositionalism, fine. But let's just make sure we're understanding the position that we're disagreeing with. And I think that's, um, I think that's fair. Okay. All right. So in summary, these are the qualifying categories. These are important qualifiers, which imply that factual discussions are not absolutely ruled out by, a, by that are not ruled out, but are proper when combined with the necessary considerations, namely Christian presuppositions. And that's it. 
That's chapter one, right? The legitimacy of evidences, okay? Evidences are legitimate when done in a proper context. And the chapter ends. It's literally just a couple of pages. All right, let me see. One, two, three, four. There are four pages in chapter one, uh, front and back, of course. I guess there's more than four. But um, very short chapter. It covers these main points. So uh, super helpful. Now, if you like what I'm doing here, um, why don't you let me know in the comments? Like, do you want me to try to continue to go through the book? I know I'm still working through um, Against All Opposition. Uh, it takes a lot of time to do this stuff. I have a full-time job, so I don't always have time to sit here and make lessons and, and, and presentations, but I will try my best if folks find this, um, find this helpful. Okay. And if you don't find it helpful, then I'll, I'll try my best to do something different, but, uh, I, I want to know what you guys are interested in so that I can be a, a resource for you guys. All right. All right. Well, that concludes chapter one. And so let's move on to some questions if there are any, and there are a couple of here. So we'll see if I could, uh, address some of them as best I can. All right. And I apologize ahead of time. If I don't know the answer, I'm just going to be like, I don't know. That's a good question. All right. Let's see here. Um, Richard Cox says, would you present one of the classical arguments for the existence of God from a precept perspective? How different would the presentation be? <clears throat> That's a great question, Richard. In one respect, if, if you were to walk into a room while I was in an apologetic encounter with someone, there's a lot of what I would be saying that sounds, that would sound very evidential, right? If you just kind of saw it real quick and like, oh, what are you guys talking about? Um, but um, again, I always have the worldview issues playing in the background. So when it's appropriate, I bring them in and that's part of my presuppositional approach. But I suppose you're, you're um, asking more like, well, what does a traditional argument look like? Well, if we could just lay out a structure I think John Frame mentioned this in his book. Um, I don't, I don't, I know there's a difference between John Frame's presuppositionalism and Van Til and Bonson's. Uh, many people who know John Frame, uh, excellent, excellent theologian and apologist, um, excellent student of Van Til, had some important disagreements. He was more critical of Van Til than, say, someone like Bonson. Um, but he presented uh, some of the arguments like this, and I think it's useful just to get the gist, right? So instead of saying causation, therefore God, uh, frame framed it. I didn't mean to do that. Frame framed it. God, therefore causation. Okay. So God is the necessary precondition for causation itself. And so there are ways to formulate it with, with along presuppositional lines. Right. Um, but again, you don't always have to, I mean, it depends. I mean, conversations are sloppy. They don't, you, if you're going to go in, okay, I'm a presuppositionist. I have to argue this way. I have to use the transcendental argument. Uh, you plan so much in your head. Uh, conversations don't tend to go, uh, exactly, um, you know, how you like it. Uh, I don't know if it was the, the great philosopher, Mike Tyson once said, um, oh man, I can't, I'm going to forget the quote. He says, Everyone has a, okay. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> okay. Same thing. Okay. We can read all these presuppositional books, all these apologetics books. We have, um, we have a plan, right? And then the conversation just doesn't go the way we expect it. We get punched in the face, metaphorically speaking. Um, so yes, we can plan to argue a certain way, but at the same time, you want to be able to be flexible and to navigate conversations. You don't always have to talk about presuppositions first. You can talk about individual arguments, cosmological argument. I don't mind giving, I've given, I've written out the Kalam cosmological argument for someone on a napkin. And I don't think by doing so, I was ceasing to be presuppositional. It just happened to be appropriate 
given the context of our conversation, you see? So uh, in reality, if the presuppositionalist is right, everything is evidence for God. I could use a cosmological argument. I can talk about causation. I can talk about design, or I can talk about mundane things because all, even the understanding and intelligibility of mundane things and normal things require the Christian worldview. So we can start anywhere the unbeliever wants to start. Okay. Um, so again, so that's one way. So God, therefore causation, right? We could argue that causation requires God or a, a, a somewhere along those lines. All right. All right. Thanks for that question, uh, Richard. Uh, let's see here. Do, 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 do. John Doe says, how many positions are there in Christianity? And is there a chart, for example, denominations, methodologies, and so on? I don't know how many positions there are, but I would suppose there are charts that lay out all the denominations and things like that. Okay. Uh, and there are books that talk about different methodologies. For example, there's the five views of apologetics, which talk about the classical, the evidential, uh, it talks about reformed epistemology. Uh, not, not sure that's an actual apologetic method, but it's relevant to the conversation. You have the presuppositionalist, you have different sorts of presuppositionalists. Uh, so yeah, these things have been cataloged denominations as well. Yep. There's a book I think by Ron Rhodes, where he talks about all of the different denominations. Now, uh, again, uh, this often comes up in apologetic context and is usually uh, used uh, against the Christian position, right? Uh, look look how divided Christianity is. What is Christianity? Look at all the different denominations. Uh, you know, there's so many different Christianities. And again, that's just not the case, right? Christian denominations are unified in the essentials and they differ in non-essentials. Simple as that. Uh, should we baptize a baby? Should we not baptize a baby? Is baptism only for uh, professing believers or is it a covenant sign for the children, right? That's an important debate. It's a very important debate, but it's not one that defines you in and out of the kingdom, so to speak, okay? So you have many denominations that differ on um, non-essential issues, but true Christian churches will agree on the foundational gospel issues, okay? So yes, there are many, I'm sure books catalog it, um, they're bunch of books that catalog it um, and the different methodologies of apologetics too. The, those are cataloged as well in the literature. Okay. Um, all right. Thank you for that, John Doe. Let's see here. Child of the King asks the question, what pre-sub book would you recommend for adults who say the Bible can't be trusted because it's been translated so many times? How can we trust it? Um, okay. So... There are a couple of things. I would highly recommend anything from Dr. Michael Kruger of Reformed Theological Seminary. He wrote the book, Canon Revisited, talks about the, histor the historical development and theological development of the canon, talks about the different books of the Bible, uh, things like that. So Michael Kruger has written on canon and the history of the text and things like that. Uh, the Bible can't be trusted because it's been translated so many times. I'm not aware of a specific book that addresses this. But if someone says that, I would just ask them, well, what do you mean? Uh, why? What is the necessary connection between uh, the fact that the Bible has been translated so many times, therefore it can't be trusted? I don't see, I don't see the logical connection. Let's assume it's true. The Bible has been translated so many times, therefore it can't be trusted. That doesn't logically follow, right? So if someone says that, I would say, can you, can you, can you draw out your line of reasoning there? What led you to that conclusion? How do you get from translated so many times to therefore we can't trust it, okay? You might also want to inform yourself as to how the Bible was translated, okay? Uh, there is a false conception of biblical translation in terms of which the Bible is translated from this language into that language, into that language, from that language. In, no, you have Hebrew and Greek, 
And then Hebrew and Greek is translated into English. Hebrew and Greek is translated into Spanish. Hebrew and Greek is translated into Japanese. Hebrew and Greek is trans... You have the native language translated into another language. There's really just one step of translation. It's not translation from Spanish to English and then English to French and then French to Chinese. It's not how it works. Okay. Also, there's an assumption in the, um, in the, in the assertion as well, right? Uh, that if it's been translated so many times, surely we would have lost the meaning and therefore we don't know what it really, what it really says. Okay. Now, besides that being factually false, um, again, what is it leaving out? It's leaving out the presupposition that the Bible is not just an ordinary book. It is a book that has been superintended by the providence of God. Okay. And so if the Christian worldview is true, internal critique now, God is able to preserve his texts. And that's precisely what Christians believe. Now we're not relegated to a fideistic assertion of, well, God protected the text and therefore we can trust it. The evidence is also on our side. In that case, you can bring up specific evidences and explain how the translation process, the, pre the preservation of the text, um, how that works out. So that'll get you into the area of textual criticism and things like that. Again, a wide, wide uh, area of study. Um, and so, uh, I don't, specific books don't come to mind, textual, uh, textual criticism books. I do apologize, but hopefully my answer was somewhat helpful. Okay. All right. Thank you for the question there, child of the king. All right. Let's see here. <clears throat> uh, Joel Duff says, thank you for covering this book. Have been interested in reading it. So this is great. Awesome. Awesome. I'm super happy that it's helpful for you. Uh, let's see here. Get three people in a room and you will get five different opinions on a topic. Uh, that's not necessarily true. That sounds witty and cool, but um, that's not true all the time. I can get three people and they would have the same opinions. Not necessarily the case, but I suppose, yeah, people do differ. It depends on the topic. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Sandy, uh, pigeon says how we got the Bible by Dr. Timothy Paul Jones from Southern seminary. So there you go. There's a specific book that might be helpful. Okay. Uh, and do to do. All right. Well, that's it. Okay. That seems to be the last of the, the questions guys. I hope you guys enjoyed this. I know I kind of went live last second, but, um, I really appreciate you guys coming, coming and listening to me blab for, uh, 50, Four minutes. Okay. Um, so if you guys like this style of just going through, you know, certain things in a book that's helpful, it's related to presuppositional apologetics. Um, let me know. I'll, I don't mind doing it. So, um, thank you so much real quick. I just want to give a last second kind of, uh, you know, to point people in the direction here. If you are looking to support Revealed Apologetics, which I would greatly appreciate it, please sign up to the Epic Online Presub Conference. It is on November 12th and the last day to sign up is on November 10th by 11.30 p.m. Eastern. So again, it's going to be super awesome. It's going to be all day long. It's epic. And we're going to be covering some super interesting and fascinating topics. So um, you can do that by going to revealsapologetics.com. Uh, click on the Presup U, Presup University, Presup U uh, drop-down window. And um, RSVP your spot um, for Saturday. All right. Uh, well, that's it for this live stream, guys. Thank you so much. I think I need a cup of water. My, I'm going to lose my voice. Um, thank you so much for listening in, and uh, I appreciate you guys. And until next time, uh, take care, and God bless. Bye-bye.